Hello and welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast. I hope you're all having a lovely week so far, but now it's Friday. And what better way to start your weekend in the blistering sun, at least it is in Dublin where I am right now, than to listen to the TFA podcast. Most European leagues finish this week, such as the Premier League, of course. Incredible to think that it's already another season come and gone. But what I always love to revise at the end of the campaign is the young talents that emerged that maybe we hadn't heard of or who had limited game time in the past, but smashed it this season and have become almost household names in their respective regions and countries or clubs, etc. Well, in this podcast, we'll be joined by a man with an infatuation for the next generation of our beloved sport to go through our top five players that have had breakout seasons in the 2022-23 campaign. And that man is Velez Club the Football Chief Scout and TFA alumni, Lee Scott. We must put a little disclaimer. All of our five picks may not have made their debuts this season, but are included on the list because it has been the season that they have really broken into men's football and have become mainstays at their respective clubs. And some even with their countries, hint, hint. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and I hope you all enjoy the following episode. Before we begin, though, please make sure to rate the podcast five stars, hopefully. It's genuinely appreciated so, so much. If the podcast is to continuously grow and get better guests on, we'll need your help. So it really would mean a lot if you could give us a five star rating. And we'll do our best to bring you the very best audio content that we can. Anyway, enough of me begging. Let's get into the episode before speaking to Lee. Lee, welcome back to the TFA podcast. How have you been? It's been a long time, actually, think, since you were last on. <laughs> yeah, it's been a little while. Um, yeah, I've been good, thank you. End of a long season, so um, I would say looking forward to a bit of a break, but that doesn't really happen, to be perfectly honest. So so looking forward to going again, we'll just say. Is this your, is this your busiest time of the year, or is the, the prep while the season's still happening your busiest time? Um... I would say this is possibly the busiest time. The, the issue with this period is that while you're just prepping with the season's on, that there are players who are coming into you in terms of agents or people pushing players or mm-hmm. suggesting players. But at this time of the year, that goes up tenfold because obviously people are looking for new clubs, new opportunities, and, and the amount of messages and players that you get put into goes up exponentially. Um, I'm relatively lucky that there's a level above me. So, so Magnus Persons, the, the director of football at, at Velez, and he'll also get a, a magnitude of player set into him. So, there's a lot of transfer market profile sharing going on at the moment. Let's just say that. Mm-hmm. When is the when is the quietest time for you a year? Does that exist? Uh, the quietest time is the period directly after a transfer window closes. So you get about so summer and January. Yeah, so you you get maybe a week, two weeks where you can just kind of take a breath. Uh, it does still doesn't stop. You're still working. Mm. That, that's the thing people don't really understand that when you work in football, you don't get holidays. Mm. I mean, even I went away to Portugal with my family in October just after I took the Velez job, and I still took my iPad with me. And I was still watching players and watching matches. I was just doing it in Portugal. Um, so, yeah, there's an element of a, a slower time just afterwards when everything shuts down. But then you have to start working again because you always have to stay in front of, of mm. where you are. I'm sorry, I know this, is, this isn't um, about... I know this isn't like a podcast on your on your life, but I'm, I'm genuinely interested just for myself. Mm. How do you deal with, like, 
on oncoming Borneo. How do you like kind of re- recharge the batteries? Um, I I used to suffer, I think, from burnout more when I was writing. Mm. Do now because sometimes the the workload and the not the expectations. That's not fair. That's not the right thing to say. The fact that you have to have a certain output and maintain that output can become difficult when you're doing something like that. I mm. think part of the way that I see things just now, I'm incredibly lucky. I mean, I, I watch football for a living. I mean, it doesn't happen, you know. It doesn't happen when you come from, from my background and not having had a career within the game, if you like, as a player. It's, it's, it does happen, but it's unusual, let's put it that way. So I don't really feel the burnout as much. I mean, I've got... My family, I say a young family, my youngest is eight now, coming on nine. So the, the older two are, are kind of no longer wanting to hang out as much as they were, but I still manage to make time for my family and for my wife and two dogs to go for walks. But when even when you're doing those things, when you're out for a walk with the dogs, for example, I'm still getting calls and messages from agents. So mm-hmm. um, I think understanding what you're doing and how lucky you are compared to some people in the world kind of it helps me to to not get burnt out that's a great answer sorry i i know i went kind of a personal there but i was just <laughs> i was curious for for myself anyway but this podcast is based around so we've picked out five players that have had as i said in the introduction breakout seasons what i mean by that is they've okay they may have made their debut last year but this is the season they really cracked on yeah, completely made it in, in men's first team football and have been key players for their sides. And the fourth player we're going to discuss is quite an obvious one, of course. Someone who's very close to my heart, being <laughs> a, being an Irishman, and somebody who made his debut about 10 minutes away from me at Daly Mount Park in a, as a 14-year-old in a 1-1 draw with Frank Lambert's Chelsea in 2019. He came off the bench in the second half, I believe. That is Evan Ferguson. There's, a, there's an interesting story about Evan Ferguson where the manager of, of Bowes at the time was Keith Long and Evan Ferguson was keeping, and I apologize, I can't remember the name of the Bowes player, but Evan Ferguson was keeping the Bowes player of the team at the time. And this player was getting quite frustrated and he was going to Keith Long. He actually said this on, on social media recently. That's why I'm saying the story. He went to Keith Long, the manager, and said, like, you know, you're playing a kid over me. Like, I need to start getting more games. You're, you're, you're playing this teenager instead of me. Anyway, that teenager, of course, did turn out to be Evan Ferguson, to which he publicly issued an apology on Twitter because he <laughs> said maybe it was the right decision to play Evan Ferguson over because he is clearly sensationally talented, already a Republic of Ireland international, and he scored on his first start as well. Lee, was it... I mean, of course, this is his fourth season, really, with, with breaking through the Brighton team, I believe. He made his debut last season in a League Cup just for a couple of minutes. He made his Premier League debut though this season under Graham Potter, I think, and then of course he kind of blossomed under Roberto De Zerbi. What were you like? Was it was it a long time coming? Do you think you you could always see the potential that Ferguson had, or or did it kind of just come out of the blue? Yeah, I think people people within football and people that, that keep an eye on young players in particular have been aware of Evan Ferguson for a while. Um, like you say, he was he was playing man men football at fourteen years old, and that just doesn't happen. In Part of that you can understand to an extent because a 14-year-old will have a technical base which may be good enough for men's mm. football. But normally the the factor that, that prevents that from happening is the physical side of the game. Um, a, a kid, a 13, 14, 15-year-old even child 
shouldn't be able to play men's football with any kind of regularity because they're still growing, uh, still getting used to the fact that their body's growing. I've got a 13-year-old who's over six feet tall, but I wouldn't put him into a men's match at the moment just purely because he's not at that point where he's, he's developed physically enough yet to be able to handle it. But Ferguson was always capable. And I think part of what's really interesting about Ferguson is it's tempting to look at him from, from the outside and say he's a target forward. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a more traditional nine, if you like, and that he's... He's over six feet tall. He's quite powerful. He he's capable of of engaging and, and holding off defenders quite comfortably, but that's not his game. And I, I think it's it's almost similar to there was a great deal of talk for a while about Erling Haaland. And not that I'm comparing Ferguson Haaland. I'm not. They're not there yet. But there's a great deal of talk about Erling Haaland when he was younger. That for all that he was huge, he was terrible in the air. And to an extent, that was true. He never scored that many headers. And, and Evan Ferguson, there's, there's an element of that about him as well and that he's not great in the air. I think he scored one header in, for Brighton the season. It was a fantastic header. It was. It's, it's, not, it's not something that he tends to do. And that said, his goals are left foot, right foot, mm-hmm. inside the area, first-time finishes, crashing the box to get on the end of a cross, receiving in the area with his back to goal, twisting and finishing. He's got that much technically about him that I think it was always inevitable that he would get a chance at first team football. Yeah. I'm looking at his XG map here and all of his goals and his shots, and there was none outside the area. And actually, speaking about the type of goals he scored, there was that one goal. Apologies, I can't actually remember the team now. Maybe was it was it Stoke where the ball was kind of fizzed into him? It was a few weeks ago anyway. The ball was fizzed into him and he managed to kind of like almost uh Dennis Bergkamp it over. It was unbelievable the way he scored. I can't, apologies again, I can't remember the actual the team they played, but it was a phenomenal finish. He scored this season 10 goals for Brighton in all competitions that I take into account, of course, the FA Cup, the League Cup and the Premier League. I've not taken into account Brighton's under-23s because I'm just looking at his stats with the men's force team. 10 goals and XG of 6.89, which is obviously he's outperforming his XG by just over three goals. Is there... You said there about kind of comparing him to Haaland. There was actually a lot of talk when he first came up about Wayne Rooney. Now, again, I'm not comparing these two players, but in the sense that when Wayne Rooney hit 16 at Everton, he was a man. It was it was a man's body and on a child, essentially. And you could say, and there is a, a bit about that with Evan Ferguson too. I remember watching the his debut for the Republic of Ireland and he came onto the pitch and I just couldn't believe he was 18. I just watched him thinking, like, this guy looks at you. Like, if I didn't know who he was or his age, I would think that's just a fully grown man. He could have been playing for Portsmouth as a 28-year-old. Yeah. He is, col- I don't want to say colossal, but he's fairly big for an 18-year-old, and you're right. So I think there's not really that sense that he's, you know, you see a lot of players that kind of come up through youth football and maybe they're not physically ready. I think the physicality wasn't really in question when he made his debut. What are the other elements of his game though that really surprise you the most? Because again, like you said, he's maybe not great in the air, but you know, he's wonderfully, or he's technically gifted, but the way he scores goals is really impressive. It's not just that he's a big, massive centre forward who heads the ball. He's not, you know, Peter Crouch or Duncan Ferguson, but what other elements of his game surprised you? I think the biggest thing for me, um, Obviously, we, again, we, we've been aware about Evan Ferguson for a while, but I, I won't suggest for a minute that I sat down and watched him extensively playing youth football. He was just a name on a list for a long time, somebody who 
you had to be aware of because there was there was this buzz about him, so you knew that there was possibly something there. So you're waiting to see how it develops. And I think when he started to play for Brighton, I mean, this Brighton team for a long time, the big knock on Brighton has been their lack of a forward. I mean, they they had Maupai who obviously went to Everton, Danny Welbeck, Danny Welbeck, and um, <laughs> then came over from you know Sanjuel Laz in mm. last summer, and he's proven to be, I think, an effective squad player, but maybe not any more than that at the moment at this point of his development. So the fact that Evan Ferguson has just emerged as the answer to that big burning question about Brighton was really interesting. But I think what struck me the most was his movement in the first instance as a forward. Mm -hmm. He obviously plays as a lone forward for Brighton. And normally when you see a young forward coming through, especially again, again, you're looking at the physicality and you're expecting a certain type of player. But what Ferguson does really well that strikers don't normally get all that well until they're a bit more experienced is that he creates separation at the right moment from defenders. So he doesn't mind being touch tight, having a defender on him for large portions of the build-up. But he understands the point in the build-up where he then has to get separated so that he can receive in space. And you see his movement really well. He reads the defender. So I think it was there's a great story about Romario, the Brazilian striker, who said that he could play a whole game not looking at the ball, just looking at the opposition defender. And he used to say, as soon as his eyes move towards the ball, I run. And that that was his technique for creating space. Evan Ferguson's got a lot about that about him. And again, that's not something that strikers tend to get until they're a little bit older. But as soon as he senses that the defender's concentrating elsewhere, whether he's scanning, whether he's looking at the ball, whether he's checking a teammate, Ferguson will either bump the defender, then move quickly a few yards to gain that separation, which gives him a little pocket of space, or he'll just move off the blind side of the defender and just suddenly... I mean, he doesn't go far. I'm not saying that he's making a 10, 15-yard run. He's, he's only moving three, four, five yards. But that's enough with his technical ability to then receive the ball and be able to link and play. And when Brighton attack, obviously Matoma and, and Tony Mar- Sully March and all the rest of them are fantastic when they're going down the outside and, and attacking in that way. Mm-hmm. Evan Ferguson gives them ability to play into the middle first to pin the defence before they then bounce the ball out wide or to come back into the midfield and then start the next phase of the attack. And a large part of that, for me, is down to his ability to get that separation and to find that space to then play it. Um, then, of course, you've got the ability to score goals and all the rest of it that, that obviously forwards have to have. But I think that was what struck me the most with him. You think that's why straight away Deserby almost fell in love with Ferguson because he knew that the way he wants to play, it, it, Ferguson is just perfect for that style. Yeah, I mean, if you think when when Deserbi was at Sassuolo, for example, he had Skamaka. Yeah, Skamaka, Raspadori, Berna, and um, Domenico Berardi mm-hmm. were the forwards for the most part for Sassuolo at that time. And Skamaka had a, a similar ability. I don't think we've seen the best of Skamaka at West Ham by any means, but Evan Ferguson has that similar kind of physical presence, but he's got the ability to be able to play with his feet and to link everything together. So Deserbi. Because of the, the focus on deep build-up, which has obviously been talked about and talked about and talked about ad nauseum at this point, because of that focus, you have to have players who are then able to operate in isolation forward. So that's why you need the pace of Matoma to play the way Deserby plays, because mm-hmm. when you need to release, you need a player who can release effectively. 
when you need to release to the forward, you need a forward who can get that little pocket space to receive in without having to constantly be engaged in duels that are 50-50 at best against powerful defenders. So yeah, there probably is an element to that. Before we move on from Evan Ferguson then, of course this was his fourth real breakout season for Brighton. Do you think next season are you expecting are you expecting constantly consistent numbers or constantly improving numbers? What do you think his ceiling is from here? I know it's quite difficult to predict he's still quite young, he's still a teenager of course, but just for, for the sake of the podcast, do you believe he can crack on now to a bigger side do you think staying at Brighton's the right move for him how do you see his trajectory over the next 12 months at least going if I were him and I was I was advising him I would be staying at Brighton for at least another 12 months for development purposes I think absolutely ceiling is, is higher um already been linked obviously most strongly I think to Manchester United to well, to an extent again linked to every striker yeah. score 10 goals in the <laughs> They need something in that position going forward to, to keep their momentum going. But I think if I were Evan Ferguson, I would be looking to stay at Brighton, especially if Deserby stays. If Deserby stays and has a full pre-season and then going into next season, and obviously you can trust the recruitment in Brighton. I mean, we know that there's likelihood they're going to, where they are losing McAllister. Remains to be seen whether they can keep hold of Moises Caicedo. Um, Matoma will be a target, but we know that their players. I mean, Matoma goes, Adringa comes back from Union Sanchez, where he is on loan, and he slots straight into that role in that position. So you have that level of consistency. Going forward, I think that Ferguson is the very minimum a 20 goal a season striker. Um, the fact that, like I touched upon earlier on, he can score all types of goals left foot, right foot, his heading will develop. It'll come on. Obviously, the, the header he scored was fantastic. He was about 10 yards out and he just angled it in the far corner. I can't remember. Part of me thinks it was against Everton. But I, I think can't. it was against Lampard's Everton. Yes, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> I got some great, yeah. great headed finish. But we haven't really seen much more of that. And that'll come on the same way that it has for Haaland, is, is he's got more experienced. Um, but at the moment, I think he should be content, if you like, playing regular first team football for a good team. It must have been interesting for Lampard to watch a 14-year-old for Bowes come on against Chelsea and then, what, four years later, tear him to pieces. I wonder who it was. I'm not convinced, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) That's an unbelievable story. Um, And I agree, actually, as well, about staying up Brighton. And don't forget, Brighton have European football now for the first time next season. So, and, and... I think at a club like Manchester United, you can go there, but they won't build they won't build a team around you. And I'm not saying Brighton will either, but you know mm-hmm. that you'll be starting for Brighton and you'll get a lot yeah. of game time at Brighton. And Manchester United, they could sign Ferguson and sign and Victor Oshiman or, or Harry Kane, of course, next season. So I agree. Moving on, though, to the next player in our top five list. It's quite an interesting one. He's somebody myself and Bryant, or Bryant and I, I should say, have done a TFA Scout podcast on before. He's a full... Italy international at this point yet he's only played kind of a handful of games I think nine eight or nine appearances in Serie A for Udinese Bryant and I had an interesting chat about the the, the state of Serie A and youth academy players coming up through the academy which was quite minimal at, at the time being but the player is Simone Pafundi and of course Pafundi again he's an Italy international it was kind of during that period where Roberto Magini I think after they failed to qualify for the World Cup Roberto Mancini started handing out debuts to a lot of, I mean, I think Matteo Cancellieri made his debut, Simone Pafundi, Davide Fratesi made his debut too when he was just having a couple of good months. 
Talk to me about Buffundi then anyway, Lee. Why did you select him for this list? What what made him stand out? I think he is he's the epitome to me of what Italian football used to be. I mean, I'm aging myself a little bit, but I remember Channel 4 Italian football when I was a kid and it was one of the highlights of the weekend when you'd get live, you'd get the Zeta programme on a Saturday morning with James Richardson and then a couple of live games on a Sunday. And now that is not a thing. My my oldest is absolutely football obsessed, but he doesn't understand that I didn't have access to all these games on TV that, that he can watch whenever he wants. Um, and I think it was about that time you, you had the likes of Roberto Baggio, who uh, I'm not aging myself that much, he was an established player when I first kind of got interested, if you like. But Baggio's performances as a 10 just encapsulated what Italian football was to me. Mm. And and then, of course, that there was Andre Pirlo, and, and people forget that Pirlo, even though he came to kind of define that deep-lying quarterback six position, he was a 10 when he first came through. He was a very creative attacking player who ended up moving backwards. I think Buffundi kind of he he gives you images of that. He's a dimin- diminutive. I mean, I say diminutive. He when you see him playing, you can't see his legs because his shorts and his socks meet. He's that small on the pitch, and his, his shirt's too long for him, and he looks a little bit like he, he almost looks like that fourteen-year-old Evan Ferguson. Probably should have looked like Chelsea <laughs> all that time, but he is seventeen and. He just glides across the pitch. He, he's 17, he's naturally left-footed. He likes to play in the 10 position, which is where he's kind of been allowed to develop by Udinese. Mm-hmm. I mean, Udinese do not have a reputation for youth development, which is, again, what makes this kind of interesting. They've got a reputation for scouting and, and recruitment and taking players from markets and perhaps less well-researched than others. But Pifundi is coming through, and his ability... And we talked about separation with it, with Evan Ferguson, his ability to create little pockets for himself with his movement. And then when he receives the ball, he's just got that vision. He can play the final pass, the line-breaking pass, but he's also shown in his short career so far that he's a finisher too. So he's got that ability to drive and dribble with the ball, to find little creative ways to access the penalty area or to finish all from that 10 position. And it's just a really exciting profile, I think. Mm-hmm. Somebody made this point recently, actually, kind of similar to the one you made. I, I I can't remember who it was. It might have been it may have been Michael Cox from the Athletic Football Tactics podcast, and he said something like, "Italian football back in the day was very defensive, but each Italian team had that one player, like a Roberto Baggio or or a, a whoever, a Ned Vedder, for example, or somebody who was just so." talented and, and they were almost given that free role. I think it's funny the way as, as well you said on the, about Andrea Pirlo he couldn't get game time on the Roy Hodgson's uh, Roy Hodgson's into Milan because again he was a 10 and they had a lot of players yeah. in that position whereas yeah. then yeah people like towards the end remember him as that that quarterback role in Max Allegri's or, or even Antonio Conte's Juventus but yeah you know he was at number 10 an explosive number 10 the same way I suppose Paul Scholes kind of was and then he yeah, dropped right. into a, a quarterback role again um, the 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 idea of youngsters coming through in Syria is, I mean, when you look at the stats, it's quite, it's quite, lo- it's really low. I'll just say that I, th- I believe it's the lowest in it may be the lowest in Europe, but certainly the lowest in the top five leagues. For a player like Buffundi, do you think 
the best place for his development then is Udinese or in a league where players aren't really allowed to flourish. And I don't mean there's, of course, there are examples of players who have come through and established themselves. But when you look back and do some research, the only player that really, unless I'm forgetting someone obvious, the only youngster who came through a, a, a Serie A system and established themselves in, say, the national team or, or a top side, I believe was Donnarumma. Because I think even Bastoni, I don't believe, came through into the academy, did he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was Donnarumma was the only one who really came through kind of a, Serie, a top Serie A academy. Yeah. For a player like Pofundi, what, 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 what advice, similarly to Ferguson, what kind of advice would you give him? Well, just touching upon Serie A quickly, I think a large part of, of the issue, not an issue, but in Italy, culturally, so different to the rest of the top five nations in that you're, you respect your elders so much, if you like, and the way of life is so healthy when you're across there that players kind of age more gracefully, if you like, and the, the pace of the game, it's stereotypical, but it, it's slower. Mm-hmm. There's less pressing. There are some pressing teams now, which there never used to be, but it is slower, so it allows players to kind of play a little bit later, if you like. And the famous example is Milan, who had the, the, the Mianello lab and, and players could play into the late 30s comfortably. Um, I think going back a little bit from Donnarumma, you, you have De Rossi and you have Totti, who obviously came through Roma, but that's gone back quite a while before you start touching upon you know, players that have come through. I think that for a player like Profundi, he needs, I mean, you touched on it in the, the intro to this section, he hasn't played a lot of minutes yet in Serie A. He's played a handful of games, but he mm-hmm. hasn't played 90s. It, it, the the amount of minutes and his usage usage within those games is still relatively low. Um, I think that his first priority needs to be to play. That there are already links to Juventus, Milan, Inter. Always happens when when this kind of talent comes through. You always get these links to the big Italian clubs, and you always look at them with trepidation because, to an extent, it can kill your career yeah. going too early to a club like that and just not getting the game time that you need. At the moment, I think that for any young player in Italy, my my biggest feeling would be you need to get yourself to a Sassuolo, an Empoli, or an Atalanta, a team who play young players, who trust young players, and who who play a style of football that's conducive to young players and that there's a lot of attacking, there's a lot of a chance to show your worth, if you like, in Serie A. Mm-hmm. Udinese have been interesting in recent seasons because they have been improving. Um, hasn't been back to the level it was when, when like I said, Oliver Bierhoff led the line and, and they were challenging for, for Europe every year. But Udinese are still an interesting side. I think that Profundi can be an Udinese regular. And similar to Evan Ferguson, he needs to make that his priority. He needs to play regularly. He needs to top 1,500, 1,800 minutes in Serie A before he then looks for his next step. And if he can do that as this creative, free-flowing, as you say, a free-role player in a, a decent side who finished in the top half in Serie A, then he can look to make a move as a more established player. But at the moment, Pufundi needs to stay where he is, I think. Well, this season across, of course, the fourth team and uh, the Primavera side as well, he has scored 0.44 goals per 90. His assists are 0.35 per 90 as well. So he's he's nearly registering three goal contributions every four games, kind of roughly. 
if you want to break it down that way, which is which is excellent, of course. His XG per 90 is 0.27 as well. He's taken 3.9 shots per 90 as well. His dribbles, 9.67 <laughs> yeah. dribbles. And it, when you watch him, it is very obvious. He's a player that loves he loves dribbling. He's a wonderful dribbler. He's quite yeah. has a the ball's stuck to him, a very low center of gravity. Um, do you think there's an issue with the and I feel like this is a again a lazy question to ask, but I think it's important to bring up. He doesn't really, he's not a very physical player. Do you think that's somewhat of an issue? It will be somewhat of an issue going forward. Do you think it's something he needs to to build on? I mean, he is a very slight player. Yeah, I, I think it's it has to be a consideration. I mean, you always get that that thing of people speak about size being important in football, and the first argument is Messi and Iniesta were time. And you're right, but they were also absolutely world-class footballers. And that can sometimes be the tipping point. I'm not saying that small or diminutive players don't have a place. They absolutely do. And I, for one, when I'm scouting, I don't mark a player down based on the fact that he's small. But that does go in the report. Of mm-hmm. course it does. When you talk about a player, you have to talk about the fact that they're small. They they may not be at their best in physical duels, defensive duels. If they're challenged, they may be knocked off the ball too easily. I think what Pifundi has, and, and don't forget, he's 17. Yeah. Um, I would imagine that if he has not added bulk to his body by the time he's 20, this will be more of an issue. But at the moment, he can be in the gym um, getting bulking up a little bit. The, the difficulty with a player like Profundi, who's quite short, is that you don't want him to bulk up too much because then they lose their agility yeah. and their ability to turn in tight spaces. So you want to protect that a little bit while still protecting the player and making sure that he's strong enough for regular first-team football. Mm-hmm. But because Pifundi is a, a ball carrier and somebody who's so quick, his size helps him because he can cut and change direction so quickly. And that's part of how he gets past players. He, he's not a straight line dribbler. He He's one who will get the ball in traffic. And before you know it, he's kind of manoeuvred his way past two or three defenders. And you have to rewind the clip to see how the hell he just did that because he didn't think he was going to emerge with the ball. But he did. And I think we, we've all seen players like that through the years, the, these small players that... He reminds me to an extent of King say that the Georgian who used to play for Manchester City because he was never big, but he was a, an absolutely fantastic ball carrier. Mm-hmm. Maybe that comparison at this point is better than Iniesta, who I was thinking of previously, because like Iniesta, Pafundi glides when he runs. He, he doesn't seem to be touching the, gra- the, the grass at all. He just moves across the pitch. But I think he possibly still has some development in him before we start talking about many Iniesta terms. Yeah. I think it's interesting that you brought up the, the fact that within a few years, if he doesn't kind of build up his muscles, it could be a bit of an issue. It actually reminds me of Angel Gomez when he was at Man United and it was one of the yeah. reasons why he could never, because he made his, he was the United's youngest ever player, I believe, to make his debut. I think he made his debut at 16. Within three or four years, he still hadn't established a place in the Forest team and then he eventually left because I think Man United were hoping that he would build up his, his physical profile a bit and it never quite happened. So it will be interesting to see what happens with Simone Pafundi and we'll keep an eye on him. But this has been a breakout year for him again, established in Italy International. Well, not established, but he is an Italy International now. Yeah. Onto a player who I would imagine will be an international within the next year or two at least is Gabri Vega from Celta Vigo. He has been one of... Actually, I should say this before I, I, I talk about Vega. The best game I've seen this year was uh, Celta Vigo versus Real Betis, which was the 4-3 game. I only watched it again last night. I think I've watched it four times since it's been there. I've watched the 
yeah, I watched it four times since it's happened. I think last night was my fourth, which is quite sad, but I love the game. I think it, it has just everything I love. And <laughs> the, the, Vega, I think, scored a brace in that. He did score a brace in that game. He was excellent. Talk to me about about what stands out the most for, for, for or about Gabri Vega when you watch him, Lee. Gabri Vega, I think, is very difficult to categorise properly because for all that, when you hear about him play, there's a lot of talk about his goals, about his attacking output, but he's not a winger, he's not a 10, mm-hmm. he's not the most advanced player. He's an 8, he plays in midfield, but he has this ability to attack space that I think a lot of players are missing in the modern game at the moment. It's kind of similar to an extent to what De Bruyne was before this latest evolution of De Bruyne, which is, I think, where the Manchester City links are probably coming from, that he's got that ability to carry the ball dynamically from the midfield forward and then to really attack the opposition backline. Mm-hmm. But it's more his ability to identify the weak link and defences off the ball. You see his movement. He he knows when he needs to drop off a little bit to receive deeper, but he also knows when he can run forward to really break between the defenders and attack that area. Mm-hmm. And he's got the composure, he's got the touch, he's got the technique, he's got all of the elements of his game to suggest that he is going to be a top, top talent. A run he always seems to make as well as that channel run between the there's different names for it, but between the fullback and the central defender, it's actually one of my favourite individual tactical movements, if I can call it that, that, that any player does. I love that when a central midfielder makes that run, as an A, he does. And he's not really a, a well, it's, it's again, yeah, you're right. It's difficult to categorise him because you can say, I wouldn't really classify him as like a link player. Maybe that's someone I'd call like a Christian Eriksen, maybe who can kind yeah. of drop deeper and he kind of links everything he's not really a six but he's he's an eight but he's not really like a he's like an 8.5 or something but Vega this season scored nine goals and got three assists he's a very attacking central midfielder so by that or by that quantification of his numbers and the way and, and the categorization categorization is the way he plays what kind of teams, apart from Man City, of course, as we said, do you think he fits into going forward? Or, or do you think maybe staying at Celta Vigo right now is the correct move for his career? Because, again, he's playing every week. He's getting consistent minutes, although Celta, de, Celta Vigo have been a team that have teetered on relegation for several years. And again, this season, it's not been the most comfortable. I think that he is going to leave this summer. I mean, he's a Celta youth product. Yeah, um, played for the under nineteens. I think he's played for the B side as well, who play in the same kind of level as, as Vela's play. So I'm very happy that we've never came across Gabri Vega at any point. I don't think any of us would have enjoyed that too much, mm. to be honest. Um, I do think he's going to leave, but I think it has to be like you say. It's a very specific style that he has. He's not going to go into uh, Chelsea, for example. I don't think because he doesn't suit the way that they seem to be. I'd say that he doesn't suit the way that they're building their squad. Of course he does. He's young and expensive. It suits them perfectly for what they're doing. <laughs> but, but maybe from a from a more joined-up thinking squad-building approach, he wouldn't really fit what they're looking mm-hmm. for. They need a partner in the midfield who's going to allow Enzo Fernandez a little bit more freedom to, to play and move forward, and that's not Gabri Vega. I think Gabri Vega is perfectly suited for Manchester City but that also because of the lazy comparison makes him perfectly suited to Arsenal mm-hmm. um, I think he would be exceptionally interesting for Arsenal but 
or whether you could fit him in the same team as Odegaard. Not sure. You'd need a really robust answer behind them, which mm-hmm. potentially they already have because obviously they have a decent, if not fantastic, six in, in Thomas Partey and Jorginho. And then they have Ben White at right back who can play that narrow, inverted position. Do you think one of them could move over to the left? Because I know Granit Xhaka is leaving, so ideally that position is free for someone to take. But I'm aware, obviously, he mainly plays in that kind of right half space, the same Odegaard. Yeah, I I think that Gabri Vega would be the one who moved over. And Mm. I think that quite often we talk about the difficulty that players have when you ask them to play on the opposite side. And we, we, we... we don't downplay, we overplay the significance of it. So if you've got two centre-halves and one's used to play on the left and one's used to play on the right and you switch them over, it's very difficult for the players because the game is completely different. The angles are completely different. I think that's easier when you're an 8-10. slash I think in that position, you have more central focus as opposed to just being specifically right and left because the game is so chaotic when you get mm-hmm. towards the final third anyway. There's more crossover, if you like. So yeah. it's not as big an issue for, for 8 slash 10s. And I think that Gabri Vega is almost the definition of what the free 10 that we used to call it used to be, the free 8 that Manchester City had in their initial kind of version under Guardiola when David Silva was at his peak. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the kind of role that I see Gabri Vega growing into, that kind of free role on that side, capable of, of crashing forward and, and creating chaos. Um as much as I think he would suit Arsenal, he wouldn't suit Liverpool, I don't think, because Liverpool need more functionality in the midfield. Wouldn't suit Manchester United because they're not there yet. Mm-hmm. And then realistically, who else can afford him? Barcelona aren't going to take him because they, they have enough trouble trying to get <laughs> Gabi signed up and, and not lose him in a free. They already have Pedri, um, De Jong, Real Madrid. Would you go to Real Madrid at the moment? Uh, he's not going to play in their midfield, so... I think if he moves, he's going to move to England, and I think Manchester City are the obvious choice. I think because, obviously, they currently have Rodri Gundogan, who's, who's fantastic, and De Bruyne. I think Gabri Vega comes in as that kind of long-term answer to Gundogan. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, well, that's, that's correct, because I believe Gundogan is linked with a move to Arsenal but he's also being linked with signing an extra one year deal but what's one year if you can kind of shadow him a little bit for a year maybe it could be really good for his or beneficial for his development so it'll be really interesting to see what Gabri Vega does especially in the summer and whether he stays in Celta Vigo or he most likely moves but the penultimate player we're going to speak about Lee was a player I actually hadn't watched up until it was the only one out of the five I hadn't watched until you mentioned him is Johan Bakayoko now big news coming out of PSV Eindhoven, as of recording today, is that Ruben Nistelrooy has stood down from his position as manager after winning two trophies, and I believe they are second or third at the minute in the area of He's not going to play the final game. It's he, of course, was the player or the manager that gave that brought Bakayoko through the academy system and and in or from young PSV into the first team and replaced Noni Maduake and and Cody Gakpo. This kind of especially with Bakayoko as, as one of them. Um, of course, we don't really know the reason why he's left yet. Uh, there's a lot of speculation, and one of them is that there was tension behind the scenes, etc. But there's no point speculating when I heard theory. I'm not, you know, we're not the 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 athletic or, or pretend to be. So we're just going to speak about Bakayoko as a player. This season, he scored seven goals. Now, what I wanted to talk to you about Lee was, and again, I don't mean to bring the a lazy comparison to the table. Do you think he kind of filled? 
Madueke's boots a little bit kind of perfectly. Not perfectly, but he, you know, playing off that right. He likes to come inside, likes to take the fullback on, cuts inside, take a shot or whip to the back post. Do you, do you think he filled that role quite well? Yeah, yeah I, I think that there are direct similarities in the way that they play. I do think that as Bakayoko develops and, and plays more first-team football, I see him more becoming a nine mm. um, rather than just being that that player off the right, like you say, naturally left-footed. He's he's already built. So we, we talked a little bit about, obviously, Pafundi and Evan Ferguson. Bakayoko's another one who's powerful. Um, got a really powerful build, not the tallest, but he's stocky and he's strong and he's fast and he's difficult to play against. Um I think you're right. I think when Van Nistelrooy, when, when they lost um, Majid Bandweke and they, they lost um, Gakpo, it became very difficult because they needed solutions quickly to kind of mm-hmm. catch Feyenoord. Um, Bakayoko, because it's one of the benefits that the Netherlands has, I think maybe benefits the wrong word because not all people in the Netherlands will agree with this, but the fact that clubs can have B teams in the second tier of the Netherlands from a talent development and pipeline perspective, that is a fantastic tool that those clubs have access to because those players are playing regular first-team level football against professionals, against difficult games, and they're playing it under a more controlled situation than when you just put them out on loan. For example, in England, if you send a player on loan to the Championship, you have no direct control over what's going on. But Bakayoko has spent the first part of the season playing the second tier of Dutch football and doing extremely well. So having that ability to then bring players through in the first team when you've got that position to fill is really, really effective. Aren't think... Young AZ a really good example of that? Because I believe they won the UEFA Youth League. They smashed their opponents in the final and they are in the Young AZ are in the the the, the second division, of course, of Dutch football. They've done really well this season, considering those younger sides of Ajax, PSV and, and et cetera, never, they're obviously not going to challenge for league titles. They usually tear down the bottom of the table in the mid, but they 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 were in the playoffs for a substantial part mm. of that season. And then AZ, of course, the actual the fourth team made it to the semi final of the Europa Conference League, were knocked out by West Ham. And so it was a really good season overall for the club. And when you yeah. like like you said, kind of those young players playing against men, and then they some of them would have played the UEFA Youth League final, and they mauled the opposition in the final. But again, I can't, yeah. probably can't remember the team they played. But it was I like, think split. And it was like 5-0, wasn't it? <laughs> or something like that, yeah. I think it's slightly different because that, that wasn't technically young as mm-hmm. That was in their 19s because yeah. youth league, you have to be under a certain age when you play them. But it is a good comparison to make young AZ because of the way that AZ developed their youth. They have a lot of young players moving through the system. I think that if you look at the under-17 squad at the moment for the Netherlands at the current tournament going on, I think a large proportion of those players are from AZ, whereas previously they would have been PSV, Pioneer, Ajax for the most part. AZ are now the dominant factor in mm-hmm. that. Um, but go back to Bakayoko, I think that he is that type of player that you want as an almost inverted forward, inside winger, if you like, playing from that right-hand side, because he likes to come inside, but he has a very powerful strike when he moves inside. He scored a couple of goals with good, powerful finishes in the far bottom corner. Um, but he also does really well when the ball's on the opposite side, which is why I think he's going to develop into a striker. He's got great instincts in terms of tucking inside and attacking the far post when the ball comes across. And again, he scored a couple of goals this season from doing just that. Um, not all young wingers have that. You'll sometimes see them hanging outside the box. They won't quite understand or they, they won't be aggressive enough 
in their off the ball movements to attack that space, and he does that really well. Um, also notable that he's all, already a Belgian international. I think the the clip from his debut against Sweden went viral when he received the ball wide, and he ended up making two Sweden players collide and fall over. <laughs> They tried to tackle him, and he just scampered away and set up. I think it was Lukaku that he set up. That was one of his his first his debut. He got an assist to Lukaku at the back mm-hmm. post for that to happen. Um, I think that went viral. But straight away, people were talking about his power, his acceleration, his physical capacity, all of which is already there. It's already at the level you need it to be. It's just about refining his positional qualities now and his understanding of his role, and and that will come again. The Netherlands is a great place for players like that to learn the role in first team football do you think before we move on from from Bakayoko he needs to be partnered with and I know you can probably say this about any player but he needs to be partnered if he is to stay as a winger that he needs to be partnered with maybe a fullback that suits his qualities because when you come inside maybe you need someone who's overlapping for instance or, or, or I mean it whatever the profile is because I always notice this with say Jaden Sancho mm-hmm. at Manchester United when he's isolated on the left on his own he's not really a player that takes you on he prefers to wait for the overlap but we mm-hmm. but you, Man United don't have that overlap because usually yeah. Luke Shaw or Tyrell Malassia will sit deeper so you, you're his qualities don't really you know they don't bear fruit in that team because you don't have the, the player that he links up with the fullback yeah. and kind of play that style do you think Bakayoko, the way he likes to play by coming inside and he is so direct, he does need that fullback maybe or, or, or central midfielder overlapping or something, for example, like Salah and Henderson, anything. Yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting point. I think it, it comes down to how much store you put on what happens on the pitch in terms of it being a dynamic match and what happens in terms of what you've told your players to do. Mm. So I always said that if my team played against Arjun Robin. I would tell my fullback over and over and over again, he's coming inside. Do not get yourself too square on. Tuck in and be ready for him to come inside. But it never happened during a game because a fullback's instinct takes over mm-hmm. and they naturally position themselves because they're afraid he's going to go down the line as well. Because they're afraid there's an option. He might go that way, he might go that way. Arjun Robin's going that way every time. He's going inside. And Bakayoko's a little bit like that. But he does... What I have seen him a couple of times faint to do that and then flip the ball on the outside. And once he gets a defender off balance in that way, he's got the power and the pace to kind of drive through that and then create. But he does, when he does it, he still wants to take the ball on his left foot, which is the, the near side of the defender. I think it's interesting because it's kind of part of the, ov- the evolution of modern fullbacks in that more and more we're seeing those those overlapping, powerful, long-running fullbacks kind of drift away from the top level of the game. And we're now seeing either more defensive fullbacks or, or obviously the in vogue thing at the moment is for fullbacks to, to come inside and play centrally and, and be able to play as midfielders, which I've always thought was a great way of overloading areas and that's mm. great. But then you need your winger to be comfortable, as you say, being isolated. And I think that might be part of the reason I think Bakayoko will be more comfortable as a central striker because he wants to be... I think his range of movement and his ability to move is better than just having him stuck outside and coming inside all the time. So going forward, I think that his best position will be there. But I think he would benefit from somebody who can go around the outside and stretch the game and, and distract the fullback. But whether those players will still exist in two or three years remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. Well, mentioning fullbacks is actually a great, great segue into the very <laughs> last player 
Okay, that was a better segue than I've, I think I've ever done in this podcast. So going into the, <laughs> the last player is Ivan Fresneda. Of course, he played last night as we're recording this. Real Valladolid, I don't want to say mauled Barcelona, but they beat Barcelona 3-1, although they had less XG, but they were just far more clinical. They beat Barcelona at the La Liga Champions 3-1. He, I believe, made... Did he make his debut last season? I can't quite remember now because the, the stats are all muddled in my mind, but... He may have made his debut last season. I know he made his La Liga debut this season when they had a few injuries. Um, and yeah, he did make his debut last year, but it was when they were in the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they were in the Segunda Division as well at the time. But of course, they're in the top flight now. He has been a mainstay now. I think he's made 22 appearances or something in La Liga this season for Valladolid. Something around that. It's an amazing, um, amazing tally for basically his fourth season in Spain's top flight. Talk to me about Fresneda because he's an interesting player who I found loves to dribble his way through pressure, which for fullbacks, like you, you know, you like to see your fullbacks mainly kind of they combine, they play one twos, maybe they go down the line to the winger or they go inside and play a one two. For example, he'll he'll just take if 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 the opposition force Valladolid wide lock on in a man to man pressing system, the wide areas, he'll just take on his winger, you know, which is quite interesting. What is the Story behind that was he naturally a winger originally, or what is it just something he loves doing? I don't know for sure, but I have a feeling that would absolutely be the case. Mm. So, I, I coach one of my kids' football teams, and, and I have a fullback who does that and who drives. You hear parents and coaches going wild because he, he'll just try and take them on, doesn't matter how many of them are, he gets the ball near his own corner and he will go for them he'll, he'll try and them every time and I love it I, I think that you, you've got to encourage that and, and he's got the ability once he gets past he's gone because nobody can catch this kid um, Fresneda's a little bit like that so the risk averse part of you wants your, your fullback to be cautious play the ball up the line clear your line which is what you hear all the time get it out of trouble but then the reward when you dribble a player in that area and then you're able to drive into space, which is something that he does quite well, mm-hmm. is great. So you have to have the balance, I think. And, and I don't think that, obviously, Fresneda is not going to play at Valladolid going forward. He, he'll move this summer. He almost moved in the winter. Arsenal and Dortmund were both very close, I believe. Um, and he is a Valladolid player, I think. I think, no, sorry, he was Real Madrid youth for a period mm-hmm. and then moved to Valladolid. Um he will play higher when he plays higher he's going to get caught out more doing that but you would rather it's it's similar to the alexander arnold argument i think when you know defensively he's not great but what does he offer you on the other side which balances that and then tips the balance you want him there for his ability now his ability to come into midfield which has always kind of been what people thought would happen Fresneda is similar in that he might give the ball away a couple of times trying to get out of pressure but when he doesn't, and when he bursts through, when he opens the game out, he changes the game because suddenly the game's open. He's able to play dangerous passes from that area or just play into the midfield comfortably. What do you think is his evolution as a player? Then, Because he was linked, as you said, with Arsenal, Borussia Dortmund. He was a former player at La Fabrica, Real Madrid's La Fabrica. But I'm looking at as well, actually, sorry, I know I'll go back to this, the question I asked at the moment. I'm kind of looking at Real Madrid's team at the moment and seeing Danny Carvajal is a very aging fullback and I think maybe a return for him to Real Madrid is on the cards. I know they have a couple of players in the youth system that I've watched that are, have have gone up and down the first team and with 
uh, the the of course the reserve side as well. But I would imagine Fresneda being an established La Liga player now would be on the cards around Madrid. But anyway, going back to the, the question I asked, what do you think is his evolution as a player? Because as you said, fullbacks have been it's a position that's evolved so much in recent years from from 20 years ago you had very stagnant fullbacks who were just focused on the defending and then you had overlapping fullbacks and you have underlapping fullbacks and you have inverted fullbacks and you know it's <laughs> unbelievable so what do you think is his evolution and as a player do you think he can be an inverted fullback do you think he's comfortable enough receiving with his back turned i think I mean, technically, you could do it. You could play that position, but I think if you do that, you lose part of what makes him exceptionally dangerous, which is his ability to cross from wide areas. Yeah. Um. He's got again touching on Alexander Arnold. He's got a similar kind of delivery from wide areas as he has. He, he's not as good a passer. Let's be clear. Mm-hmm. Not going to ping regular crossfield passes the way that, that Alexander Arnold does. But what Fernandez does really well is understand how and when to put the ball into a dangerous area in the area. In the box, sorry, not area to area. That's just ridiculous. Um, but his ability to whip the ball, to float the ball, to play lower crosses, to cut back when he goes round the outside, all of these things make him a dangerous player at fullback. If you start inverting him, you automatically lose that. That, And again, as soon as you do that, you're expecting your winger to be completely comfortable, isolated wide against fullbacks, which isn't always the case. I think Fresneda is going to be more of... It, it's weird because... Now we're having this conversation, and I nearly found myself saying, "I think he's going to be an old-fashioned fullback." How how is an overlapping fullback suddenly an old-fashioned fullback? But there you go, he's he's going to be a fullback who will offer width, who will support behind the ball, and he's got that ability that again, when when the fullback gets the ball laid back and they're essentially in the corner of the area, the whip that he gets on his crosses is really dangerous, and I think that that's something he has in his game. Um. The Real Madrid link is interesting because from from a recruitment point of view, you're always looking for opportunities to, especially when you qualify regularly for European competition, mm-hmm. you're always looking for opportunities to add homegrown players. And I believe that he would be able to qualify as a homegrown player having been in La Fabrica. Um, and Danny Carvajal is starting to show his age a little bit, unfortunately. But uh, what, their, what their evolution for that position is, I'm not sure. Um, I think either way, Fresneda is going to leave Valladolid because he, he's better than, than that level at the moment. And that's him just, as you say, he made his debut last year, but this has been his breakout season. And I think going forward, he is going to become a very good player, given that he's only 18. Yeah. And what, what club then would you recommend him move? Or that, if you were to give him advice, where would you recommend that he goes? Because you can say to go to Real Madrid, but maybe Carvajal said as a season or two left him, who knows, he might just be a backup player. You look, I mean, look at um, Audrey Zola, was it, I, I believe, kind of went around Madrid and was 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 far from great because Carvajal, again, it was, it was believed that Audrey Zola would take Carvajal's spot and Carvajal's still here about five years later. So, yeah, yeah. You know, where would you um, recommend he goes? I, I, I think, that obviously, the big links have already been Arsenal and Dortmund. I don't think either of those are a very good idea for him at this point. Um he's going to be more likely comfortable being able to stay in Spain. A Villarreal, Real Sociedad, that kind of level in Spain as the next step up would probably represent sense. Um, maybe Betis, uh, something of that kind of level within Spain. I don't think I don't think Real Madrid would be the, the right choice for him at this point mm-hmm. because, like you say, it's going to be difficult to establish yourself in the first team. Um, if I were him, I would stay in Spain because that's where I've established myself. 
But I would go to the next level up in terms of club. Villarreal is probably quite a good shout because I think that they are competitive at the moment and well coached. Yeah, no, I agree. Lee, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Just to summarise the five players we picked was Brighton's Evan Ferguson, Udinese Simone Pafundi, Celta Vigo's Gabri Vega, PSV is Johan Bakayoko, and of course Real Valladolid's Ivan Fresneda, who we believe at least three of those will possibly get a move this summer, which is quite exciting. Lee, where can people find you? Uh, best way that we want to speak to you is probably Twitter, at FM Analysis. Um, I do get quite a few messages there and on LinkedIn these days, so feel free to reach out if you mm. need to talk about anything. And to all the listeners at home, I hope you enjoyed as well, or I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Make sure to tune in on Tuesday for another episode of the TFA Scouted podcast for you all to hopefully enjoy. And make sure to tune in next Friday as we have a very special guest on the podcast, a man who's a very young coach already in Europe with the second name still. So tune in, tune in for that. Thank you all for listening <laughs> and goodbye for now.